not going to give the dogs another treat no matter what they do because they spent half an hour alone with raw bones and they don't get any more treats today. Yeah, that seems like enough treats. Okay, we are recording this podcast because I have had an epiphany. Mm-hmm. I have had an experience, a series of experiences that came together in a realization. So should I start with the realization or the series of events that led up to it? Start with the realization. The realization basically is that what you do in the face of mounting evil is all the things that you would have done anyway to make the world a better place. Okay. It doesn't sound that impressive when I say it that way. Um, I think maybe the, the events that led up to it might give it context and make it okay. feel as important as it clearly is. People who know me know that I was skeptical about the 2016 election in ways that were not justified by the polls and got reassurance from all sorts of places that like, no, no, it's going to be fine. And it wasn't. I perceived that election as being a referendum on women in America because I am merely a white lady who tries. I underestimated the extent to which it was also a referendum on immigrants and people of color, especially black people. I didn't see that as being as important as the woman part and the woman part's important but then there's all these other pieces that i underestimated and now i understand that um and the last three or four years has been an escalation in a sense of panic of watching constitutional democracy degrade before our eyes and watching many many sources that ought to be alerting us to that and doing stuff about it not alerting us to that and doing stuff about it i am firmly convinced at this point that should trump have a second term, there will not be another free and fair election for at least a decade. Not that there ever was a free and fair election in the United States, but anything even remotely resembling a democratic process. My perception is that Trump being president again is the destruction of constitutional democracy in the United States. Saying that out loud. Like, I'm a person who started a podcast called The Feminist Survival Project 2020, I had the idea a year ago, anticipating that 2020 was going to be a shit show, and I have been way righter about that than I thought I would be, right? Like, I come from a place of pessimism, and it is true that optimists live healthier lives and stuff, but what the research is really clear about is that when the shit hits the fan, it's the pessimists you want around. You want the people who can see clearly how a path leads to the darkest worst place so that you have that point of view and can avoid going to the darkest worst place. Because if everybody is just an optimist and assumes that like whatever's going wrong is just temporary and isn't symptomatic of any larger kind of problem, it's just a blip and it'll pass, right? Like optimists are happier, they live healthier lives, and they are more fun to be around. And pessimists are the people who save the day. Yeah. And I'm just reporting what we read in the research when there was a section on temperament in burnout back in 2015. Yeah, this is pretty well-known, well-established information. Yeah, this this is is not, you're not saying some kind of like cutting edge controversial theory. Like this is pretty well-established. Not at all. Pessimists perceive the world more accurately than optimists. Optimists are healthier live longer, happier, more comfortable lives. Pessimists have are right. Yeah. Yes. 
which has been like a talking point between me and my therapist for a while now. Me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> my penultimate experience building to the epiphany was actually a session with my therapist where she said, you seem invested in anticipating the worst. And I was like, I don't anticipate the worst. I just said, I don't anticipate a militia marching down my street. I don't anticipate a nuclear attack here where I live anytime in the next decade. No. I'm not anticipating the worst. I'm anticipating realistic. Yeah. I'm anticipating the destruction of constitutional democracy. Yeah, yeah. That's in not the, United the States, worst. It could, be, it could so be worst. Oh, in the United States. And I don't know how it's going to end, but that's absolutely what I see. It's what I have seen for a couple of years now. It's why I started a podcast called The Feminist Survival Project. So the sub-penultimate event that led to this epiphany was a Hey All video on Sonia Renee Taylor's Instagram, where she was addressing people's reaction to Kamala Harris's nomination as vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. And first she said that America is a cake that got baked with a cup of salt instead of a cup of sugar and you can't unbake the cake, Yeah, for one thing. But also that it was ridiculous to think that this was going to be an election where people's votes count. Vote, she said, but also plan. Mm -hmm. Plan because the dissolution of everything is coming. Yeah. So, like, we can't unbake the cake. And Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are just like, it shows that nice progressive people can be in control of a salty fucking cake. Yeah. Imperialism and racism, it's built into our nation's DNA. And hearing her say out loud, like, why, I don't, like, y'all, it's going to be, it's like, this is not an election where that's what matters. He is actively interfering with the democratic process itself. And you are, deliberately ignoring that if you don't recognize it. So hearing her say it out loud, she's the first person I've heard say it out loud in public. Really? And it was so calming. What do you mean, really? Well, I watch um, Full Frontal with Sam B. And on that show, she has interviewed several times Masha Gessen, who wrote a book called, uh, this, just this year wrote a book called Surviving Autocracy. And they say very clearly, Trump could demolish constitutional democracy as we know it very soon. He's on track to do it. This is what it looks like. This is what could happen. And in their last interview, they said uh, they saw hope-ish <laughs> that we could actually change it because we do still have... Didn't that interview happen during a massive thunder and lightning storm? It did. It did. Yeah, their power was going out. <laughs> the lights were flickering. And the lighting was all yeah, like creepy. It was super. And it looked all dystopian. gloomy. But, but they said hope-ish. 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 Because we do still have... We are having an election. Just one chance. We are having an election. And there has not been enough time to rig it the way that Putin rigs elections where he wins you know 100% of the vote right that's so right we so the election is real it is happening it's it's too late for them to rig it as elaborately as a true autocracy would rig it but my epiphany 
is that my choices, my personal behaviors to, so let's go back to Sonia Renee Taylor. In her video, what she said is that Biden-Harris is just like nice progressive people trying to sugarcoat the salty cake. That doesn't actually change the cake, right? Yeah, right. And that means that whoever wins the election, my choices, my personal choices remain the same because her next step beyond it's let's you're just frosting a salty cake her next advice was so vote but prepare Mm -hmm. prepare get ready to create the new world because we can't unbake the cake we need to build a new cake we need to like create something brand new so think about what it is you would need to do to start over, to start from scratch, rebuilding a better America. And if I'm not going to say that, like, what a gift autocracy is. <laughs> <laughs> like, people are dead. But hundreds of thousands of people have died. Um, almost Probably 200,000 just this year, mm-hmm. just from the one disease, have died. I'm There is... I I wish this were not happening and it had not happened. And the result of it happening is that I recognized that the world I want doesn't require a particular president because that's not how the change is going to happen. The change has to come from each individual person being like, this is extremely fucked up. How can I participate as little as possible in the shit that's extremely fucked up and only participate as much as I can, only give my money as much as I can to not fucked up shit. In the same way we talk about divesting from relationships with people who feel like they're entitled to take everything you have, this is divesting from every relationship that is just more of the salty cake. Does that make sense? So all these choices I've made, the the beef that we, we bought a quarter of a cow from the local butcher who bought the beef from a local farmer divesting from industrial meat. The CSA, the local farm share that we joined, divesting from industrial food as much as possible. We even have our dairy delivered locally now. And I know that that's all privilege, privilege, privilege. And, and I can. And so I'm doing it. And my original motivation was the assumption that constitutional democracy is going to vanish and government is going to be non-functional. And I need to find ways to sustain my life that are not connected to federal organization. And I realize that all those choices are choices that just make my life better and make the world better. And I would not make different choices just because there were a Democrat as president. Does that make sense? Yes. So I'm helping either way and it is not my responsibility to save democracy i alone can't do that i'm gonna vote we're all gonna vote we all need to vote if there has ever been a year when it mattered that we all just fucking take an hour out of our day and go vote it's this year yeah no it's not a matter of taking an hour out of your day for a lot of people it's the whole day they gotta go stand in line that's true in particular this year it's going to be a lot more than that yeah which it's yes okay you're right for some people it's going to be a whole day yeah. invested in like one vote out of more than 100 million that are going to be cast yeah together maybe we can 
save the salty cake. Yeah. But even if we save the salty cake, and I, as a, like, pragmatic human, am in favor of saving the fucking salty cake. I'm in favor of that. And even if we did, I would still want to be a person who doesn't participate in the industrial food complex and who tried to make the medical industrial complex a little more humane and just. So here's my question. Toward- would you have taken these very different actions, made these quite distinctive choices, if you had not been immersed in this hellscape for three and a half years? No, because it's more expensive. Yeah. yeah. It's more effortful. It requires me to have relationships uh, with the butcher and the farmer and my neighbors. Like, I've, I've developed my relationships with my next-door neighbors on the assumption that, like, we're going to need each other in a very real and literal way when democracy goes away. And it's hard. It's really uncomfortable for me. And it's uncomfortable for me to spend this much money on food and to, like, cook this much. Like, I don't enjoy it. I would not have made these choices. But all of those cons on the list vanish against the scale of horror that I see coming. So, I mean, that's the part where I'm like, I'm so grateful that this atrocities are happening. Well, I think that... Because it is the thing that pushed me that hard. I think that you're not alone in that. Like, the number of especially white, especially young protesters who showed up at Black Lives Matter marches in the spring was definitely also a direct result of seeing the pandemic and how it hits people and also having the kind of time to sort of stew in your own thoughtfulness about what's going on in the world. So I think that you're right that, you know, uh, it's another fucking learning experience, except unfortunately, we're not the ones. It's not like me and my learning experience where I learn how to listen to my body because I'm tired all the time. Like our, the whole country needs to learn to listen to its body because it's it's poisoning itself. Yeah. They need to stop taking the poison. So the ultimate thing that happened was another Sonia Renee Taylor video. The follow-up to the one where she said, she vote Prepare. and plan. Yeah. Plan. Uh, the next one was, so I'm going to do a live video because I noticed a lot of you reacting with a whole lot of fear mm-hmm. and anger mm-hmm. to my last video, which is preventing you from hearing the words I said. Yeah. Because a lot of people were like, are you saying don't vote? And she says it like three times. Vote. (laughs) And that, like, again, the conversation I've had with my therapist over and over and with various other people, like, that I'm overreacting, that I'm being too pessimistic, that it's bad for my mental health to dwell in these, like, worst possible outcome ideas. And that is true. Maybe. But it's good for the survival of the earth and my family. (laughs) Which is the nature of pessimism. And I'm so it's not as good for you hearing Sonia Renee Taylor name it that like she heard from like hundreds of people who were reacting to her pointing out the crumbling of constitutional democracy with this like like it had never crossed their minds and they resented her saying it out loud. (laughs) And my reaction was to feel like at peace to hear someone saying it out loud like that. Yeah. That's how I feel about Masha Gessen. Relief to hear someone say it yeah. out loud. And Masha is an emigrant from Russia. They were a journalist in Russia and got out. Yes. Which may have saved their life. Yeah. 
But leading up to this, what sort of like built the cognitive infrastructure for me, I read two books. I listened to two books. Um, my glasses prescription is changing. So it's not just that I need reading glasses. It's that at any distance, my vision is worse. So reading is really difficult for me right now. Oh, I'm going to get new glasses. You're so much older than me. I How? <laughs> why? Why? Shut up. <laughs> you want to do the rest of this in your old lady voice? I have to have a glass of <laughs> Okay, sorry. So I'm listen I listened to two books, um, and they were How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, mm -hmm. which lots and lots of people are yeah. reading right now, and that's great. And the other book was Defying Hitler, which is a memoir written by Sebastian Hafner, who it was written in 1939, basically about the year 1933, the year Hitler rose to power. So there's not the sort of like retrospective kind of voice the way we have retrospectives about World War II now. It's in the moment right before the war starts. How did we get here? And first of all, yeah, it entirely disproves the idea that anybody could have not known what was happening. Like they, they definitely knew. Yeah. They definitely yeah. saw what was coming. Yeah. And again, because people don't want to believe that the worst could possibly be true, even if the worst is literally right in front of their eyes, literally being said in the words, if only you would listen to the words. There's no, like they didn't want to believe yeah. that it could possibly go that far. And so they didn't find, they were like, you know, frogs in the cold water being brought up to a slow boil. They, there was never a point that they went, this is uncomfortably hot before they were already cooked. Yeah, I I'm I know for a fact I've heard people say about multiple presidents, they hear the words that a president says and they say, well, he doesn't really mean that. What he means is this. And they project onto the president what their beliefs are, no matter what the words are, no matter what the actions are. Of course, with Trump all along, a lot of Trump supporters are like, well, he's just using hyperbole. It's rhetoric. It's not going to go that far. Um, and they did the same thing with Obama. Obama said marriage is between a man and a woman. And people are like, well, he secretly believes and supports gay marriage. He just has to say that. Lots of people don't listen to the words is what I'm saying. People don't listen to the words. And because they don't, they don't hear what they don't want to hear. Yeah. And when they hear what they don't want to hear, they react, as Sonia Renee Taylor put it in this video, with their stress response, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. She mentioned one we almost never talk about, the tendon of friend response, fawning, making peace, being like batting your eyelashes, going belly up in front of the predator. Be nice to me. Oh, it's going to be okay. Be nice to me, fawning. So when people react with their stress response, they do not hear the words. And like we know this from John Gottman's research, that when people stress level you, when your heart rate goes above 100 beats per minute, you get into repeating yourself syndrome where you are not listening to the other person at all. And you're just saying your point of view over and over and over again. Sound like any fights you've had? <laughs> that's that's a reality no. of our stress response. Yes. That's our physiology. And there is, in, a, in a stress response also, in all the, among all the physiological changes that takes place, the speech parts of your brain literally shut down. Yeah. So when you are speechless or or struck mute, that's because literally the part of your brain in charge of creating words and getting them out of your mouth is not functioning the way it's usually functioning. Because you don't need words to run away. But when you're on social media, you you can't run away. And so what you do instead is yeah. type, are you saying we shouldn't vote? 
Listen to her words. Right. Listen to her words. Yeah. Listen to her words. Okay. So, yeah. But they can't because the stress. Yeah. Like it literally shutting down be true as far as your brain. brain's concerned. And also there's confirmation bias where like you're just so afraid that the thing that you believe you might not be it. true that you just yep. don't even hear or notice. You can't. Your brain shuts off the possibility of perceiving evidence that is contrary to what you believe. So the last piece of, so that was defying Hitler is the 1939 retrospective on 1933 of being a progressive German, watching what was happening, being nauseated by Hitler and the SS and nauseated by the exposure you have and watching what it does to your own behavior, the ways that you unwittingly become complicit. And he emigrated to the UK in 1939. He and his Jewish wife got out. Pregnant wife got out. Yeah, it's it's well, a pretty great well. book. I recommend it if you're looking for, like, if you, like me, have been thinking, what was it like for the Germans who were paying attention, who were attuned? How did What did they do? How did they do it? So that was useful for me. That, like, it helped to nor normalize, help me feel sane, that I wasn't crazy, that I was seeing things that were real because I heard him in his book writing about Hitler, what I saw in my everyday life. And I want to state for the record that I know that I'm comparing to Hitler and I have therefore broken the rules, but I have friends who yeah. are the children and grandchildren of survivors of the Holocaust who themselves compare our progress to Nazi Germany. They do not feel disrespected yeah when I use language like that. In the Holocaust Memorial Museum, there is a sign that says, early warning signs of fascism, powerful and continuing nationalism, disdain for human rights, identification of enemies as a unifying cause, supremacy of the military, rampant sexism, controlled mass media, obsession with national security, religion and government intertwined, corporate power protected, labor power suppressed, disdain for intellectuals in the arts, oppression with crime and punishment, rampant cronyism and corruption, fraudulent elections so so the comparison to hitler is not invalid because all that shit is literally happening so defying hitler and then the last book that was the piece of the epiphany i'm gonna add a sort of bonus book after this but i haven't read it yet i only saw interviews with the author so the this final book ibram x kendi's how to be an anti-racist is great you should read it it's the story of him having more and more layers of his own internalized racism exposed, that it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be actively anti-racist, and he gives this definition over and over again, that it's about the policies, and at the end he's like, it turns out it's all about self-interest, and over and over it's like, here are the ways that I was wrong about what racism was, starting from when he was in high school, to being in college and being wrong about what racism is and how racism works to him being wrong, going to a lecture where someone uses the metaphor of racism as a disease in the American body. And he objects yeah. to this because at that point, his internal metaphor is more like Sonia Renee Taylor's of like, it's baked in and it can't be unbaked. And so if it's a disease, that means it can be cured. Yeah with some sort of intervention or treatment. And then he reveals, and a, a, I'm about to spoil the shit out of how to be an anti-racist. If you don't want that, please skip ahead 30 seconds. 
He reveals that he himself, as he was finishing the book, is diagnosed with stage four cancer. And his thinking changed because he's diagnosed shortly after his own wife finished treatment for cancer. And it got him thinking. Maybe racism is like cancer. It's a disease that could be cured Mm. given adequate intervention. Now, I don't know if racism is more like a cake or more like a disease. But I know that if I act as if it's a cake, that is also treatment for the disease. And that was the epiphany for me, that it doesn't matter whether it's baked in America's just, we just need to like leave your cake out in the rain. (laughs) (sighs) Those are lyrics to a song for the record for people who are like, why does Emily find it funny to leave a cake out in the rain? It's because that's, I didn't know. Oh, really? Okay. Cake in the rain is a, is a lyric to a song. Anyway, I don't know if it's a cake or a disease, But I do know that what I would do if it were a cake is the same thing as what I would do if it were uh, a disease. Does that make sense? Take some actions to remedy it. Right. Try to fix it. In the same way that sort of no matter what is wrong with an individual person's health, eating vegetables and getting some physical activity is always good, right? Like, it doesn't matter what the disease is. Yeah. That's sort of like... Fighting racism is also just good. Anti-racism is good. Yeah. And so (laughs) it feels like such a dumb thing to say, like the actions I am taking in the face of fascism or autocracy or the dissolution of constitutional democracy, whatever language you want to apply to it, the actions I am taking are the same as the actions as I ought to have taken to participate in progressive change, like incremental change. Where, like, I'm not a, like, burn it all down person. I'm a, like, people live there. You can't burn it down. And you're the, they're hovels. We should burn it down and give them better houses. Right? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I'm, yeah. Th- there's a cake and. We need to bake a new goddamn cake. bake a new goddamn cake. So my epiphany is that we don't need to pick a metaphor, disease or cake. The answer is the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the answer is for you. I don't know what the answer is for any individual person listening to this. I can only know that what do I personally do, whether it's a salty cake that we need to bake a new one or it's a disease and we need to treat it. My work is connected to my something larger. So I feel like a sense of purpose and I'm making the world a better place when I do the work that is with teaching women to live with confidence and joy in their bodies. And it's better when the tasks of daily living that are necessary for the maintenance of life, like bringing food into the house and the way it's prepared and the way I connect to the people who immediately surround me, those are all choices that I should have been making all along to the extent that I could. You didn't realize just how important, just how intensely necessary divesting from that system was until it got so bad that I became largely convinced that come January government's not going to work anymore and food transportation systems Mm -hmm. are going to it's going to be like March all the time 
where you feel lucky if you can find frozen broccoli in the grocery store. Toilet paper. Tulietna bumaga. Tulietna bumaga. There's this movie, Moscow and the Hudson, and Robin Williams plays a Russian who defects. And uh, the, the beginning is him standing in line and he asks, you know, is this chicken or <laughs> toilet paper? I think is that question he asks. And he... <laughs> and it's kuritsa ili tolietna bumaga. Tolietna bumaga is toilet paper. And uh, yeah, uh, that's how March felt to me. Like tolietna bumaga, do toilet paper? Is this toilet paper? Uh, yeah. So I got confronted hardcore with what it would look like if the, uh, as, as Sonia Renee Taylor would put it, uh, the sort of frosting on the salty cake. What if we strip away the frosting? Because it's the first thing that melts in the rain. We definitely have to have a link in that song, link to that song, in the show notes. Yeah, because yeah, I don't. Even, I still I have no idea. The frosting is the easy access to food and toilet paper. Is that what you mean by the frosting? The thing that yeah, keeps you from it, tasting the saltiness yeah. of the cake. It's also, I mean, like. Another book that I reread was Salt, Sugar, Fat. We did the Bikini Industrial Complex episode and it reminded yeah. me about salt, sugar, fat. And so I re-listened to that. And basically they take a food-like substance and they coat it with salt, sugar, and fat and it becomes palatable because yeah. they put these substances over it that make it, make it fool us into thinking that we're being nourished. And some of that yeah. got washed away in 2020. It became less palatable. Yeah. And even though I feel like I had a sense. Yeah. I had a beginning of a sense in 2016. I have a much stronger sense now of like how diseased it is. But you know how you are not, I'm going to say this gently, you're not awesome at listening to your body. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I don't know where you get that. Sonia Renee Taylor, for example, has a really strong spidey sense when it comes to fascism, racism, she has to because she is a fat black queer woman. Yeah. And so in 2016, she moved to New Zealand. Whereas now in 2020, middle-class white people are now like their body is now Yeah, and the middle-class white peoples are, are hearing that shout from the public body, from the American body. And when they hear the shout, their response is no. That can't be what's happening. I can definitely do a fourth load of laundry today. It's well, no, fine. I think I think I think though what like middle class white people hearing the shout means is that suddenly they're unemployed. They have no savings. They have no health insurance, and there's no fucking toilet paper in the store. And now they can see what wealth inequality results in, how dire and how desperate it is. Why? What was it called? The Wall Street where they all sat in the park. Occupy Wall Street. Why Occupy Wall Street was this big deal, what people were trying to accomplish and yeah, things that they never noticed before because the frosting, they were living in a frosted world where things were, you know, hard. Everybody has struggles, but, you know, not, not like now, <laughs> kind of like me. Yes, you're right. Doing four loads of laundry until my body literally shuts down. In March 2020, the American body literally shut down. We all had to go. Mm, uh, what are you saying i should need, i need to sleep nine hours a night what as a metaphor still did we lose track of the metaphor <laughs> okay uh, i want to talk about the, okay. the bonus book 
So I talked I talked about Sonia Marie Taylor's Instagram feed, okay. conversations with my own therapist, uh, Defying Hitler, and How to Be an Anti-Racist. Those are just some of the books that I've been absorbing for... I think I'm justifying <laughs> So there's a there's a philosopher named <laughs> Jason Stanley. Hitler. And Jason, Stanley is, oh, Jason Stanley is a philosopher. He wrote a book called How Fascism Works. So that's convenient. Mm-hmm. It was published in 2018. And I haven't read it yet. I have only like seen interviews with him or seen him like speaking on YouTube videos and stuff. Yeah, it's like on my so list next and I haven't got there yet and reading is hard and it makes me sad to think about the fact that I need a new prescription when I'm 43. Feelings. So, but he has this <laughs> shtick where he like really quickly summarizes. He's like, chapter one is this, chapter two is this. And he like does the whole book in five minutes and it's hilarious and like yeah. real. Yeah. So one of the things that's most important of... What I've heard him talk about is that Mein Kampf is full of praise for the U.S. 1924 Immigration Act. That it is full of recognizing the one drop rule for miscegenation under Jim Crow laws in the United States. That Nazi Germany was not going to go as far as the ridiculous one drop rule. Their rule was one eighth. Oh my God. You had to be one eighth Jewish to be a Jew. That America in the 1920s was an inspiration for Hitler. That's embarrassing. It's way worse than embarrassing. It's a very important reality check. Yeah. And his own story in his family, his mother pretended to be a Nazi social worker and went 400 times into concentration camps and each time took one prisoner out with her and saved 400 people pretending to be a Nazi social worker. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Right? And a lot of the research I was doing in looking for stories of what it was like for progressive people in Nazi Germany, a lot of it was commentary on how little resistance there was, how helpless and hopeless the German people felt. And, and then I started finding these stories. Mm-hmm. I found Defying Hitler and I found Jason Stanley's grandmother story. And there was, there absolutely was resistance. Defying Hitler is, he emigrated. The people of Germany did the not The story get... of Jason Stanley's grandmother is she stayed and worked against Hitler, risked her own life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and what it took to get Hitler out of power was yes. a fucking world war. Yes, that's part of the freedom that comes with that story for me. And also, when Sebastian Hoffner was writing in 1939, he was in a place where he recognized, first of all, one of the things he said is that the first country the Nazis invaded was Germany. And yeah, he yeah. recognized by 1939 that the only way, that they would inevitably fall and the only they would, way they would fall is with international military intervention. And like I said, I don't know how it's yeah. going to end for us. Maybe that is how it ends for us, is international military intervention. I don't know. Yeah. But I do know that, like, I could be Jason Stanley's grandmother, pretending to be a social worker, let my hair grow in its natural color, wear unobservable clothes. I could totally, like, I could do stuff. And... 
one of the things we talk about over and over again is separating the stress from the stressor. I realized that my summer depression, exhaustion, overwhelm, the thing that this podcast is here to treat has been about my thinking I could deal with my stress by dealing with the stressors, thinking I could deal with impending collapse of constitutional democracy by preparing. No, <laughs> no. It seems so silly that I ever thought that now. No. Particularly given the advice I give literally everyone else, right? How could I ever have thought that trying to prepare for the collapse of democracy would help me with my feelings about the collapse of democracy? For the same reason that everybody else assumes that solving a problem will also take care of their feelings about yeah. the problem. That's just our natural instinct. It's our intuition. And we forget. But I feel to about myself the same way that I feel about you when I hear you doing a fourth load of laundry. Like, really? Did you not yeah. even check with your body? Yeah. So yeah. uh, uh, the beautiful thing that happened over this confluence of books that I read and videos I had and interactions and blah, 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 is that I separated the process of dealing with the stress and the process of dealing with the stressor. And one of the, the, mo the key that helped me, my epiphany is I would want to make the same choices whether democracy were actively collapsing in America or not. I know that I'm doing the right thing because it's what I would be doing regardless. Yeah. And maybe I'll be put in a position where I need to pretend to be a Nazi social worker in order to rescue people one at a time. Or maybe I'll just continue eating as locally as I, spending as much money spending as I can on Spending a lot food. of money on, <laughs> on local, yeah. organically grown. And like that comes from the privilege of we bought less house than we can afford. And so we have money to spare for like buying local organic blah 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 vegetables and and I'm spending the summer yeah, yeah. putting up spare vegetables for the freezer because I expect that the uh food supply chain is not going to function effectively come February. So what you're saying is that out of adversity oh has fuck you <laughs> new self-awareness and better choices. <laughs> That will improve your life in the long term and probably also the lives of the people around you. I'm just saying, maybe this is a learning experience. I'm only... <laughs> I know that you're already acknowledging that it's a learning experience. I'm just putting it into the bigger context. Yeah. And I have to say, recording the shadow podcast was part of that too. Of like sort of being confronted with the fact that my feelings about a thing were actually my feelings about me. My, my rage about the political stuff yeah. was justifiably pointable toward my own participation in those systems. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think this will be helpful for anybody else? Or is it really just me alone being like, it turns out, it turns out justice is justice. I'm sure it'll be helpful for somebody. No matter how explicit, no matter whether it's a salty cake and the bullshit is the horror is baked in or it's a disease that needs treatment, the intervention is the same. Have I, do you feel like I've stated I, that in a way yeah. that people are going to be like, oh yeah, or are they all just going to be too reactive to the uh, vision of constitutional democracy dissolving? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Because I am already a pessimist and I already was aware of the, you know, I'm someone who is soothed right. by Masha Gessen. I don't find them alarming. I, I find that perspective really 
affirming, yes, apocalypse, 100% possible. But, <laughs> okay, this is supposed to be about my epiphany that I had as a result of all these things that happened. And I, yeah. And you were asking, do you think people will find this helpful? And it's hard for me to say because I'm a pessimist. Like, yes, I'm even more of a pessimist yeah. than you. We tested it. So I am not at all astonished or alarmed and I don't react with fear. I just I'm like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The moral of the story is if you're if you're listening to this, you already know there's something wrong and you already know what you personally could potentially be doing to fix it. So just do those things, regardless of what else happens. Even if it doesn't feel like it's enough? Exactly. Because go back and listen to the Abyss episode. No one is ever enough. Because enough is, it's not about, mm -hmm. let's go back, let's, let's insert here. Like, the hope comes not from me and my tiny fucking epiphany. And it doesn't come from you listening to me. It comes from... You know, like I'm on the shore with my bucket trying to like move some sand and it seems so tiny, me and the beach yeah. and the ocean. But like, how are you alone going to move the beach? You're not. That's the thing. I look to my left and I see an infinite row of other people with their buckets. And I look to my right and I see an infinite row of other people with their buckets. And suddenly my individual bucket, my tiny little epiphany, my one quarter beef and my farm share and my building relationships with my neighbors and all the other stuff I'm doing is my little bucket. But it feels powerful when I recognize that all the people all around me are carrying their little piece of it too. That's how I am enough. I am not mm -hmm. enough by myself. I'm not going to save democracy. It makes me literally, I feel like my heart feels so sad when I say that out loud. And I can only admit that I feel sad when I say that out loud because I know there are other people who also totally irrationally, like some part of them is still holding on to the idea that they alone could save democracy. Yes. Or at least that they should. And that's, that's not where enoughness comes from. Enoughness comes from connection. It comes from all of us doing the thing that we can do, regardless of what happens. So vote. Yeah. And plan. And maybe follow Sonia Renee Taylor on Instagram yeah. because she makes epiphanies happen. That's good advice. On that note, that's this episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I'm Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. You can find us on the internet at FSP2020, mostly on Instagram, a little bit on the Twitter too. It's just a replica of the Instagram. You can email us feminist survival project 2020 at gmail.com. And yeah, I hope this helped someone. And thanks for listening. Listen to her words. Right. Listen to her words. Yeah. Listen to her words. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.